Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I want to send my congrats out again to seniors who should be in the throes of making their final decisions, and once they decide where they're going to go, well, then it's time for them to start paying, uh, which is something none of us really want to think about, but um, we're actually going to be talking today in one of our segments about payment plans, which can make that part of the process at least a little bit easier. Uh, office hours, we're talking to you underclassmen out there who are thinking about standardized testing or maybe in the middle of standardized testing, so we're going to be talking about some tips and advice for you uh, surrounding that. But before we get to that, one of the things that I've seen a lot of uh, more recently, probably in the past couple of years, are U.S. students who are getting interested in studying in the U.K. and... Um, Looking at colleges out there, last year I actually was in Scotland right around this same time um, visiting St. Andrews and um, University of Edinburgh, uh, and I dragged along my son who was 13 at the time, and he's not super interested in college yet, but he thought it was pretty cool, and he was sort of on board with the idea of maybe considering a school in the U.K. when it came time uh, to apply to college. So. We are super excited to welcome Jenna Hartzell to the show today. She is education manager with the British Council, and that means basically that she knows all about applying to UK universities from the US. Um, so, Jenna, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Beth. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. So, when we thought about how to talk about this on the show, I know that something that happens a lot for me and for my colleagues um, is that we get a lot of kids who have certain misconceptions about what it means to study in the, in the UK. Um, I will confess that I had some of those misconceptions as well. Uh, and so we thought it might be nice to kind of go through some of the bigger myths surrounding applying to UK or attending UK universities um, if you're if you're from the U.S. and that we could kind of tackle those and give people information that way. So I think that one of the big uh, the big misconceptions uh, about applying to schools in the U.K. or about getting into schools in the U.K. is that really only students with top test scores, so top SAT scores, ACT scores, AP scores are going to be able to get into college in the, in the UK. So I wondered what your thoughts were about that. So this, this is a common misperception, which we've run into as well. Um, I think since some of the most well-known UK universities are some of the most uh, difficult to get into. Um, but in fact, there are over 162 universities in the UK and just like in the U.S., um, those universities range in terms of student body size, campus type, and also in the entry requirements that they're looking for from students. Um, so we truly believe that there is a best fit a U.K. college for every student that's interested in going to the U.K. And uh, 
U.S. students, they don't need to worry about taking um, a U.K. qualification, such as a GCSE or an A-level. Um, those universities in the U.K. do accept uh, U.S. qualifications like SAT tests, um, ACTs, um, or AP test scores. So students will be able to find out from the universities they're interested in exactly what scores those universities are looking for. And actually, that's something I particularly like about UK schools, which is that they are um, fairly specific about general ranges that they're looking for and sometimes a little bit more forthcoming than you might find here in the U.S., where there are more schools practicing kind of a holistic approach or they're not necessarily practicing a holistic approach, but the ranges that they might be giving aren't as specific as they could be. Um, I just I find the U.K. to be a little bit more uh, forthcoming on that front, and, and I like that. I think that can be really nice uh, and a nice change from some of the way that, that things are done here in the U.S. Um, so another big one is the idea that going to college in the U.K. is expensive. Certainly, if you're growing up in the United States, to go to college in the U.K. means taking transatlantic flights, so there's no getting around that piece of it. But what about the, the rest? Is it really as, is it prohibitively expensive when you consider costs in comparison to U.S. schools? Well, going, going to university in the U.K. can actually be a comparatively economical option for U.S. students, particularly for those who are considering going to a private university here in the U.S. or even going out of state. Um, choosing to go to a school in the U.K. could actually come out cheaper for them. Um, so tuition fees in the U.K. range from 10000 upwards to £21,000 per year, um, but typically for an undergraduate degree, it'll be between ten to £15,000 per year. And it's important for students to keep in mind when they're calculating those costs that in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, undergraduate degrees are only three years. So they are saving on that fourth year. Yep. And most UK universities are approved to accept U.S. federal loans as well. So U.S. students can take their, their federal loans with them to the U.K., um, which I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. And so you said tuition. What is, um, in addition to tuition, that's not covering where they're going to live, correct? So that's going to be an additional cost. Yes, that will be an additional cost. Um, there are recommendations from the UK Visas and Immigration Office on, on the, the monthly amount that students should be prepared to cover. Um, so I, I believe at the moment it's £1,265 per month um, that the UK Visas and Immigration Office recommends for a student considering living in the London area, um, and that cost will be a little bit lower outside of London. Um, so there, there will be costs incurred outside of those tuition and fees, but um, all, all in all, if a student is looking out of state or at a private university, um, they could come ahead uh, financially by considering the UK. Right. And, and that makes sense because, I mean, if you're going to look to go to school in Manhattan, 
it's going to be way more expensive to live than it would necessarily to live in uh, even a suburb of New York or certainly another part of the country where cost of living is significantly lower. So you're going to find the same thing in the U.K. Uh, yeah. I, I think – I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, exactly. There, There's definitely a range of living costs um, across the U.K., and the other thing, too, is are, are semesters shorter? I know that I also visited um, Cambridge and Oxford last year, and I remember that one semester was about, I want to say, and I could be mistaken because I don't have my notes in front of me, but 16 weeks, so it was, it was relatively short. Um, is your sense that the length of the semester is a little bit shorter as well than it is here in the U.S., so they may not have to... Um, live for quite as long in in the UK when they're going to school. Um, I I don't think that the the time spent on um, in university is shorter in terms of the the semester length, um, including their exam periods. Um, so, but but like I mentioned, in in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, they will be. Um, only in university for three years since they they take a very targeted um, degree since they're not um, students don't have to take general education requirements um, so so that's where students might be able to save on time in university right right and a whole year is a big deal for sure uh, all right yeah so let's go on to the to the next one which is Again, also a big one. These are all the, I would say that the first, the first three that we're going through are probably the biggest uh, myths that I encounter. And I think the third one for me is definitely one that I have been challenged with, um, which is the idea that there isn't any flexibility in UK degrees, that if you want to study in the UK, you really kind of need to know what you're planning to do going in. But, um, but in fact, I think that's not always the case. So what, are your, um, what can you tell us a little about that? Yes. So we do advise on parents and students that are, are looking at the UK, um, the students do have to apply directly to their major or what they call a course in the UK. Um, and it is difficult and sometimes even impossible to transfer um, from one course to another. It is important that um, students are fairly certain um, of the of the degree that they want to study. However, um, there there is some flexibility within the system that um, students who are looking for more flexibility can find. So, for example, even within a student's degree, um, there will be electives, especially in their final um, in their second and final years. So, students can tailor their degree with those electives. Also, more and more UK universities are offering broader degrees, such as a Bachelor of Arts in Humanities or Bachelor of Sciences in Natural Sciences, for example. So those degrees would allow students to study several subjects within a subject area. Um, and students can also look into programs called um, Combined Honors, which is essentially closest to our double major here in the U.S., so students could combine um, two subjects or even two or more subjects. 
um, so that they could um, have flexibility in their degree that way. And also, students looking for more flexibility might want to consider Scotland, um, since undergraduate degrees in Scotland are four years. Uh, so they're a little bit more similar to our U.S. degrees, and they let you study a range of subjects in years one and two before going on to specialize in the next two. Um, but although some students may see um, the U.K. degrees as having less flexibility than the U.S. system, I think a real strength of that system is for those students who do know what they want to study, they can dive right in from day one, and they don't have to take general education requirements, so their degrees tend to um, be a little bit more specialized as they get into um, their second and final year of their degree. Yeah, the Scotland option was really intriguing to me because I was working with a student who was very interested in going to the UK, had a couple of things that she was interested in studying but wasn't quite ready to specialize or to name her specific focus. And what the Scottish schools allowed her to do was to um, go in with kind of an idea and explore a little bit more in those first two years and then, as you mentioned, specialize. So um, there's certainly, uh, there's certainly that was a better option for her than maybe doing a three-year program somewhere else where she needs to be a little bit more locked in. Okay, we have time for one more myth. And... Okay, so we have time for one more myth, and um, this is the idea that if you get a degree in the U.K., it won't be recognized in the U.S., and that's not something I've actually ever thought about or worried about, but I'm guessing it is something people worry about. So what can you tell us about that? So just, just like U.S. degrees, uh, U.K. degrees are um, considered high-quality um, degrees across the world. So um, we, uh, I don't think students shouldn't worry about bringing back a UK degree to the US and not having it recognized. And in fact, um, we conducted a study with nearly 800 employers in the US and Canada on their perceptions of US students getting an undergraduate degree abroad, and specifically um, in the UK. And most employers came back and said that they thought that a degree earned in the UK was equal to or even better than a degree earned in the US. So um, that should hopefully put students' minds at ease about bringing a degree back from the UK to the US. And in today's interconnected world, I think many employers actually value um, really valued the global perspective that students gain while studying in a different country. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and um, we're almost at the end of our time, but um, one last quick question related to this idea that it won't be recognized is, what if you are um, you're pursuing an undergraduate degree in something like medicine or dentistry or veterinary science or law, um, in terms of practicing in the U.S. once you get your degree in the U.K., any issues that they need to think about there? Yes, excellent question. So the, for students earning a professional degree at the undergraduate level, which they can pursue in the U.K., such as 
uh, medicine, dentistry, veterinary science, or law, um, they may have additional requirements to become certified to practice in the U.S., and those, um, those requirements tend to be state-specific. So we always recommend that students check with the state where they intend to practice to find out what additional steps they would need to take um, to bring back that U.K. degree and be able to practice in the U.S. Awesome. Jenna, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Beth. Uh, Okay, up next, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to be talking about payment plans, so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England, along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week, and each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. In fitness and health, we all deserve a second chance. Join host Michael Skog for the program, You Only Stronger. You always have the ability to start fresh, even if you slip up on your diet or fitness program. Even small steps taken throughout the day can help. Each show will conclude with weekly assignments that you can use and will want to hear your feedback. You Only Stronger airs live Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everybody. We are talking about payment plans. That's what I promised before the break, and I'm delivering on my promise. And here to talk through those with me is my college coach colleague, Tara Piantanita Kelly, who also happens to be a former financial aid officer at Menlo College and Rochester Institute of Technology, among others. Uh, Tara, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Absolutely. All right. So... College payment plans, sometimes I think people know these exist. Sometimes I think people have no idea what we're even talking about. So what is a payment plan? Well, pretty basic. Kind of just like anything else, yeah. It's it's taking one big bill and then breaking it down into smaller kind of bite-sized payments. So, you know, like if your if your fall charges are two thousand you know, ten thousand dollars for tuition and fees and room and board, you know, they you, if you can write a check for ten thousand dollars on August first for that, that's great. But if you can't, you know, you, you might be able to do a payment plan and break that ten thousand dollars down into, you know, four or five monthly payments, just making it a little easier. Right, absolutely. And uh it is it's sometimes I think hard for us to imagine that we could write that check for a big number like that, but if you really think about it, you might actually be able to put aside the money from your monthly expenses and do it on a on a more regular basis rather than having to have it all up front or doing something insane like putting it on a credit card. Um Exactly. If you don't have if you don't exactly. have the funds to pay for it. Um Exactly. So is it, is it is it kind of an all or nothing thing so that um, you know parents when they go on a payment plan then they are responsible for it? How does it work in terms of in terms of that? Gotcha. Well, parents can actually it's not an all or nothing thing. So parents can pick the amount that works for them. So if they take a look at their budget, their monthly budget, and they say, you know, we think we can afford four hundred dollars a month, they can have a payment plan, you know, for that four hundred dollars a month. Um, but one thing that parents kind of forget about is that you know once your kid goes off to college, believe it or not, your household costs might go down. I mean, you know, you're not going to be paying for those groceries or the utility bills or anything. Or if the you know your student was in sports or extra curriculars, that's going to go away. So you might actually be able to pay even more than you would normally think because, you know, your, your household budget might, you know, you might get some additional cash flow when, when your kid moves out. So you can add that to a payment plan too. I will tell you that when my son goes away to college, our food bills will decrease uh, substantially. I can't even think about how much extra money I'm going to have to put to college once he is no longer eating everything that isn't nailed down in this house. So I, I am with that you, sister. <laughs> <laughs> so can you, maybe we could talk about a little bit of an example about how a parent might use a payment plan. Okay, yeah, sure. So um, when I'm talking to families and I say, well, you know, what are your fall bill? Let's say your fall bill is at $10,000. Um, and the payment parent might say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to pull maybe $2,000 out from savings, um, and maybe I can do a, you know, a, a five-month payment plan for $400 a month, so that's another 2000 of that, and then maybe I'll just borrow the remaining $6,000 somehow. So, you know, the payment, you know, they can certainly make a payment plan part of their payment strategy. It doesn't have to be the only strategy. It can be part of a, a bigger payment strategy. Got it. Got it. So, yeah, that's sort of interesting. You're going to borrow some chunk of it that then gets paid off, and then they're going to use the payment plan to pay the pieces that they feel like they can pay out of their operating expenses um, or out of savings. So that's kind of cool. What a in that example that you're giving, and I may have just stolen your thunder, but probably not because, again, as has been well documented on this show, 
I know enough to be dangerous on the finance side, but not nearly enough to actually be helpful. So what do you see as the, as the benefit of the payment plan in that example that you just took us through? Yeah, well, the, the immediate thing that comes to mind is that uh, that parent is borrowing $2,000 less, you know, than they would have normally, um, and that is per semester. So if, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, a, a eight semesters, uh, if you multiply that $2,000 payment plan times eight semesters, that's $16,000 that the, the parent didn't borrow. And, you know, if they're looking at borrowing on the Federal Parent PLUS loan, just so you know, the the current interest rate is 7% on that, and, and then the, they also have a pretty high origination fee, which is 4.3%. So, um, you know, that 4.3% of that whole $16,000, you know, that, that's like $688 that they've saved in origination fees. Um, if they had borrowed that $16,000 instead of putting it on a payment plan, they would have paid over $6,000 in interest on, you know, on that $16,000. Wow. Um, and, yep. and by not borrowing that $16,000, they, and even if they have borrowed some on the plus loan, if they've borrowed $16,000 less, you're looking at a plus loan payment of uh, $185 a month less than it would have been if they had borrowed that $16,000. Payment plans are good. That is yeah. an awesome amount of savings, right? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So, but is it? Are they free? I mean, if they were free, it would be even more of a no-brainer. But I, you know, my sense is that there at least is a little bit of a cost associated with them. Yeah, you're right. There, there is, um, and those really vary widely by schools. But it's a, a pretty common one is for them to have like a sign-up fee, maybe you know anything from twenty-five dollars to seventy-five dollars for you know to set up a payment plan. But usually they don't charge any interest at all. So um, and that fee is charged every time you set up a payment plan. So if if you're looking at doing a five-month payment plan for the fall and another five-month payment plan for the spring, you're looking at twice the fees. Where maybe instead you could put together a you know one ten month payment plan or a twelve month payment plan and just have the fee once. So yeah, it's it's yeah. Still a pretty good deal. Yeah, so even even uh, there's even more savings and I mean basically those fees that you just mentioned pale in comparison to the six thousand dollars in interest that you saved in your example, your previous example. I'll take seventy five dollars over six thousand pretty much any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> you right. both. Yeah, exactly. Is this something that you're going to find at every school, or um, are there some schools that maybe don't offer them? Um, well, I guess I can't say definitively that every school has one, but um, I have not come across a college that doesn't. <laughs> so they are there. I would be surprised if you'd find a school that, that doesn't offer some kind of payment plan. And maybe you should be concerned. If you find a school that doesn't <laughs> offer a payment plan, and and is yeah, that might that tell you, you recommend, right? I would be concerned. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's something many people think to to ask about when they're looking at colleges, but is that something that you suggest you take a look at before you even actually apply and get accepted, or is it really something that can wait until you're deciding where you're going to go? 
um, it could probably wait because, you know, like I said, I would be surprised if, if a school doesn't have it. So I would, I would assume that the school has it. But if you want to check, uh, you know, during the application process, you, it would be pretty easy to find. Just open up the, the school's website in their search bar, type in payment plan, and it, it will take you there, and you could read all about it. Um, it's usually housed on the web page of the school's, like, financial services um, website, you know, where, where they do all of the, where they take the payments. So it's either, you know, student financial services or, or sometimes it's called the business office or the bursar's office or student accounts. But that's where you would find the information specific to that school's payment plan. Got it. Okay. So we've, con- we've convinced every person who's listening out there right now that they need to use a payment plan. Uh, so <laughs> when, do they, when should they sign up for the payment plan? Uh, it is April, so my hope is it isn't too late. Um, but when does it get to be too late to sign up for a payment plan? Ah, great question. Now, um, it, it really depends on the school's payment plan. Like if, if they have like a 12-month payment plan, it's possible that that 12-month payment plan starts in May before the fall term so that they would make their payments for the fall, you know, the, that upcoming school year, May through May. So, you know, if a, uh, as soon as a student makes the deposit and says, yes, I'm going to go to your school coming this fall, you might want to take a look on the school's website and see if they have a 12-month payment plan that starts in May. Um, if but, but let's say that you don't do that and you decide in June or July that you want to do the payment plan. You can still get on the 12-month payment plan. You just have to make some, you know, catch-up payments. You still have to take, make the May and June payments, and then you could be on it. Um, or you could just say, you know what, I'll just do the, the fall five, four- or five-month payment plan instead, and then next year I'll do the 12-month. So lots of flexibility there. Got it. Okay. Uh, are there any... We, I think we've talked a lot about some of the great benefits of using a payment plan, and I, I guess I'm curious if there are benefits that we haven't covered that you'd love for our listeners to know about. Yes, and I, there's this one particular strategy that I love, and um, over and above just all the, the benefits of the, uh, the payment plan. So how about this one? Um, some schools will allow parents to set up their payment plan so that the plan automatically debits their checking account each month. So that's an easy, you know, kind of a set it and forget it thing, which is great. But the strategy that I really like is if the payment plan allows the parent's uh, credit card to be charged each month. And now normally you're like, wait, we don't, we don't want to do that. We're charging interest. And right. stuff. But, but listen to this. Um, if the parent has a credit card that offers some kind of benefits like points or miles, this could be a way to get a lot of points and miles because you're going to make those payments anyway, right? So have it debited onto your, your credit card and then pay the credit card off every month. Um, so when I was a, a financial aid director, I would often see parents paying their students full charges with their credit card in order to get those points or mileage. And, uh, and then they'd turn around and when they're Federal Parent Plus loan came in the next week, they'd pay off their credit card. They still get all the miles. It was great. But um, schools will often now not take credit card payments because, you know, there's fees mm. associated with those and stuff. So, um, but this is kind of a little way around it. So if the payment plan will allow, you know, will, will let you have your credit card debited for your payments each month, you know, this could be a way to, to get some points and miles, you know, maybe enough to even take your college graduates, you know, on a, on a vacation when they graduate. <laughs> nice little benefit. Or take there. yourselves on a vacation when, you gra- when your college student graduates to congratulate yourself <laughs> on being done paying for college, right? Even, even better, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and obviously the caveat with that, and, and we've already talked about it a little bit, is, of course, 
that only is really beneficial if you're paying it off every month. And, and um, I think sometimes you can even set it off, set it up automatically in your own bank, right? To pay off your credit card <laughs> automatically. Absolutely, or you can even set it up on your credit card's website. So let, you, can, you can have it all set up automatically for your payment plan to charge your credit card and then set it up on your credit card account to, for your credit card every time the payment is due to automatically debit your bank account for the full amount. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a pass-through thing where, you know, you end up with a zero balance on your credit card and you get all the points and miles. Yeah, I love that. That's a great idea. Um, I love it, too. Before before we wrapped our segment, I did want to share um, a a great quote that you sent to me. And this this is from um, Jean Mahan in our office, who is a frequent guest on Getting In. So her take is she loves payment plans, and she has love in all caps. Um, She thinks they are the unsung heroes of college finance, and she used one for her son's expenses, and it was super convenient, and uh, all the things that we covered today, just it was a total win for her family. I can tell you that um, we use a payment plan for my stepson, and I think similarly it's a big win for our family, Um, and so hopefully people will take a closer look at these if they haven't already. Yeah, absolutely. They're a great deal. All right, Tara, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Have a great day. All right, you too. And uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to be talking about standardized testing in office hours. So don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I want to send a special shout-out to everyone who's currently sitting on a wait list. There are so many of you this year. It feels like so many more than normally we would have sitting on a wait list. Uh, if you are thinking about this, worried about this, not sure what to do about it, you really want to visit our archives because we have actually in two very recent shows covered different elements of the whole wait list issue, uh, and I think they'd be really great listening for you if you haven't checked them out, so check those out. But we're not talking about wait lists anymore. Now we're going to standardized testing and something that's probably a little bit more interesting for those students who are juniors and younger who are in the audience and their parents as well. And I'm excited to welcome my colleague and former Barnard, Fordham, and Montclair State Admissions Officer, Tova Tolman, to the show. Hi, Tova. Hi, Beth. Well, thanks for coming today. We, we, we plan an office hours segment in every show, as those listeners who listen frequently know. Uh, and sort of behind the scenes, we're always sort of, okay, well, what are we going to cover in today's office hours around this? And just sort of what's top of mind for us, for our students right now. And um, I think we have all talked to juniors who fit in, fill in, fit into one of two camps right now. Um, the first is the junior, it's April of junior year, and the student and or parent is saying, okay, we haven't really started thinking about standardized tests, and now I'm worried that we haven't started thinking about standardized <laughs> tests. Um, and is it too late to take care of any of it now, or is this all going to have to wait until next fall when, uh, when I'm a senior or my student is a senior? So what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are that it's not too late, Beth, and please, please don't don't stop, pause, or collect 200. Just go immediately to some test prep plans. Get registered uh, for perhaps the June 2nd SAT. It's uh, By the time this airs, only about seven and a half, uh, less, just less than a little under eight weeks away. And, uh, it, and you get an extra week if you're thinking the ACT, because that's not until June 9. Uh, so if you talk to any of our test prep partners that, that we've had on the show, you'll find you can do a fair amount of damage in the test prep world in just six weeks' time. 
But that really does mean you, you got to do your research, decide on a plan, and get started immediately. But it is not too late. I just had this conversation with my niece literally last week, who I kind of wanted to take by the shoulders and, and shake her. You must take the SAT this spring. Uh, she's a, and, and I think this might be common for many of our listeners. Maybe they're a really dedicated athlete like she is, and they were planning on concentrating on their spring sport and diving in and figuring, okay, this summer I'll, I'll prepare and then I'll take the SAT or the ACT in September. And I, I just strongly discourage waiting to have any testing to consider until the fall to not have anything to go off of for your search process just feels a little, a little late for me. So the moral of the story is it is not too late. Dive in, start tomorrow or today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why not today? You are listening to the show. When the show is over, don't leave now, but when the show is over, go and start <laughs> working on this stuff. Well, and I would add to that chorus of don't wait until senior year. Another big reason not to wait is that oftentimes students will need to take a test more than once to achieve what they feel is their personal best score. And if you, the longer you wait, the less opportunity you're going to have to potentially take the test again. Um, the, the cardinal rule with this entire process of applying to college is in every step you want to take your be- you want to put your best foot forward. You want to present an essay that is the result of uh, multiple edits over time. You want to apply to a list of schools that have been thoughtfully added. You want to send the best test scores that you are capable of getting, not the oh my gosh, I have an application due tomorrow, I'll write the essay tonight or tomorrow morning, even worse, right? (laughs) Or, you know, well, I'm going to wait, I'll take my SAT in September and then, oh, you know, lo and behold, the date, uh, and I don't even think you can take it in September, I'll take it in October. Uh, And then the date on which you could take it in October is you have a, a conflict and you can't do it. Now you're looking at November and you might have applications that were due uh, on November 1st and maybe they will accept testing after that. Maybe they won't. So the longer you wait, the more complications you add to the process and the less likely you're going to put your best foot forward. So please don't wait. Don't leave the show. But when we're done, start get on it. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, what about the, we do also have students who actually have already taken an SAT or an ACT and um, they're pretty satisfied with the score that they got. And what are your thoughts on, is it all right to take it once and be done or to have taken it twice already at this point, have a score that you think is pretty good and feel like you're done and moving on to something else? Yeah. You know, Beth, I feel like this one's a harder one to answer because it's, it's less black and white. And like one of our favorite things to say is it depends. Uh, I think you need to begin by looking at the kinds of colleges you're considering and looking at what their average testing is for an admitted student. And there are a couple of different approaches you could take. You could say, hey, I'm already above average. Boom, I'm done. You know, I have what I need. My guidance counselor is, is confirming for me. Yep, I'm a shoe in at that school. I might advocate that, sure, you're done. The only thing to consider even in that scenario, though, is might additional points earn you more scholarship dollars? And, okay, these are the schools that I'm looking at. I know my testing is already above average, uh, but 
could 100 extra points gain me $5,000 extra a year in scholarships? Now, all of a sudden, maybe a little extra prep, even investing some money sometimes in that extra prep, might be worthwhile and something to consider. I'd say let's, let's, you know, maybe we should clarify what you, what we can all agree is done, done, no matter what school you're applying to. I think if your testing's really well above 750 on the SAT in each section, uh, would you agree with that, Beth? Would you say higher? Yes. That that we can say you're done. You know, how many students have come to us and said, uh, I have a 1570, I have a 1580, but I, or I have a 35, but I think if I take it again, I can get a perfect score. Should I? Uh, what do you say, Beth? I say no. I say you're done. Go spend that energy elsewhere. What do you say in that situation? Yeah, I say I say no. I say that the um, extreme focus on getting that 1600 is probably the wrong thing to focus on, and it may yeah. show in your application, right? That yeah. To me, sometimes those students can tend to be a little feel a little one dimensional, very focused on collecting accolades rather than on mm-hmm. doing things that are really truly interesting to them. Um, and, and, and it can show. It feels a little mercenary um, sometimes in the, in the application. So if you're just what you just quoted, if you're at a 750 or above, if you're at a 35 on your ACT, walk away. There are so many more interesting things that you could be doing with your time, and the additional points are not going to get you more scholarship money. You're not going to be a better candidate for one of those super selective schools because you got 10 points higher on one of those sections on the SAT. It's time to move yeah. on. Yeah. So, 100% and, you know, agree with, that, with you. Yeah, with that idea of you know, 10 extra points, 20 extra points, let's say your student has only taken it once. Uh, the question to ask also about taking it again, and, and I'd say, you know, unless we can all agree that you're done because the score is so strong, but let's say there is some room for improvement. A real important question to ask is what prep are you actually going to do? Simply taking it again is not going to earn you a higher score. You know, unless maybe you took it really early, uh, inappropriately early, let's say like second half of 10th grade or, or really early fall of junior year without any prep then, okay, maybe you've had more high school English, more high school math. Perhaps you might see an improvement then. But otherwise, I, you know, if you're just taking it again two months later and you've changed not at all the way you've prepared, you can't expect a different score. I, I, one of my favorite uh, analogies from our uh, colleague Karen Spencer, a frequent past guest of the show, she used to liken it to taking a history test. You go into school one day, you take a history test, you get an 85, uh, you go back in tomorrow and you don't prepare any differently, you might get an 83, you might get an 88, you're not all of a sudden going to walk out of there with 100. So thinking right. about your test prep the same way, if you're not actually going to dedicate any time to preparing and doing practice exams, practice tests, working with perhaps a class or a tutor, and you're simply just going to take it a second time, skip it. You're, you're not going to see a worthwhile improvement and all that time and energy and anxiety spent on sitting for a second time, uh, I think, could be better spent on your activities, on your homework, on researching what might college might be a better fit for you, and perhaps hold off till the fall where maybe you have a couple months to do some preparation over the summer and then take it a second time in the fall. Yes. Great advice. And just a shout out to um, the two companies that we uh, ought- often refer families to, and I actually have my son working with one of them on his uh, current 
she's getting some tutoring in math. And um, they're Arbor Bridge and Revolution Prep. Uh, you can find them online. And uh, if you let them know that you, you're coming to them from College Coach, they'll even give you um, a special deal. Uh, all right. You know what, Beth? What that's about actually how I knew yes. that that it was not too late because I had this conversation with my niece. Uh, we got in touch with Revolution Prep. Uh, they assured her she she can do a six week course uh, that she's getting started next week, and they just gave her that confidence to know that don't worry, there's time, and and we can work with you. So both companies, I think, are fantastic. Yes. They are lovely um, and, and should be really helpful to you. And they also offer free diagnostics. So if you're trying to figure out mm, whether yeah. you want to take the ACT or the SAT, uh, you certainly, we don't really have time to get into that question today, but you don't need to be doing both. Um, and they can help you figure out which is the better one for you to focus in on. Um, but let's talk uh, for a minute about subject tests. Who needs to worry about taking those? Um, I really just the students applying to schools that require or recommend them. If your student is, you know, is in April of their 11th grade year and they've never heard of subject tests and none of the schools that they're looking at at all require or even recommend them, they absolutely do not need to take them. There's, there's no benefit needed there. Uh, if, however, you take a quick poll of the schools that your student is looking at and you realize, oh, goodness, a couple of them, a couple of them do, actually, <laughs> then um, it would be a very good idea for your student to look to take them this spring. Uh, it's uh, May or June test dates when they're available. And I think the simplest advice to follow is look for the classes in which your student is doing well, uh, ideally at the AP level, and look for the subject test in that subject the end of the year that your student takes it. That's when the content's fresh. That's when they'll do their best. But if your student is applying to schools that do not require subject tests, there's absolutely no need to take them. Yes, agreed. And the vast majority of students really don't have to worry about taking subject tests because the vast majority of schools do not require them. Uh, and in a similar vein, we didn't talk about it, um, but the writing sections are optional on both the SAT and the ACT. Uh, if you're applying to the UC system, you definitely have to take the writing section. So if you think that might even be in your future, um, go ahead and take it. Beyond the UCs, there are only a handful of schools that still require the writing. So similarly, most students are not going to need to take the writing section. So um, be aware of that as well. Here's, um, here's an interesting thing that comes up from time to time. Um, I'm a student. I'm looking at test optional schools. Do I need to do any testing if I know I'm applying to schools that are test optional and the testing isn't required? Do mm -hmm. I need to worry about it? You know, I'd say that my answer for this one changed in the last couple of years. You, know, you asked me that question three years ago, two years ago. I'd say, yeah, 100% they still need to take it. No question. The majority of schools out there are going to require it. Let's give them as many options as possible. These days, and if you take a look at the website, fairtest.org, fairtest.org, and look at their optional list, there are more than a 1,000 colleges out there these days. You heard me right, a 1,000 colleges that wow. no longer require SAT or ACT. It really is. And top-tier colleges, more than 100 colleges um, in the in that list, or actually, I'm sorry, more than 300 in the what uh, 
U.S. News and World Report deemed top-tier schools, uh, and schools that you've heard of, like uh, in terms of the liberal arts colleges, like Bates and Bowdoin and Furman and Holy Cross and Pitzer and Smith and Wesley, I think could go on and on, but even also national universities like American and Brandeis and UW and Wake Forest and WPI, all these schools I'm listing are test optional. With that said, I think it's always safest, especially if your student is really still pretty undecided and they really don't have a defined list yet and they have no idea where they might be applying. Your best, safest bet is to still plan to need to take it and, and to head in that direction to do your preparation and, and to sit for the exam. And then based on the results, you can make some of, of a greater informed decision. But you might be surprised how many schools out there actually do not require it anymore and have moved in different directions, focusing more on the transcripts the grades, the rigor for those, those grades earned, and are looking less and less to testing. Right. And so two things. One is if they are test optional, believe me, they are test optional. They aren't, mm. well, we don't require your test, but we look down on you if you don't submit them. They typically have a philosophical uh, approach to this, so they really do feel like testing is not a requirement for them to figure out who is the best candidate for their incoming class. And then the second thing is just, you know, it, the flip side of maybe you're going into it with a plan to only apply to test optional schools, but maybe your prep didn't work very well, you're not doing very well on your tests, well, go to that uh, website, fairtest.org, and um, take a look and see which schools are test optional. You may want to add a handful of them to your list if your scores aren't really where you feel they're not in line with what you're getting in the classroom. There's a big disconnect there. That can be the perfect time uh, to look at uh, test-optional schools. Tova, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Beth. All right. So just quickly, thanks uh, to all my guests. Uh, It was great to have everyone here, and, and hopefully you took a lot away from that Office Hours segment next week. Um, Sally is hosting, and it is getting down to the wire. You have until May 1 to make your final choice. Um, Hopefully many of you have already made that final choice, but if you're still trying to figure it out, we're going to be offering some tips for choosing the best, and the best I'm putting in air quotes because um, we don't go to rankings to find that out, but to find the best from the options that you have. Um, So some suggestions for that. Uh, You have lots of questions. We have lots of answers. We're going to be doing uh, a QA and a segment uh, with financial aid, college finance, and admissions questions. Uh, If you have questions and you're thinking, you know, one of these days I'm going to send them in, well, sit down and do it right now. Our email address is gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. I mentioned already our archives where there's great stuff, not only about the wait list, but also about um, how to negotiate potentially for more money if you didn't get enough, how to ask for more money if uh, you feel like the package that the school put together wasn't really enough for you to afford to attend. Uh, we have some great suggestions around that. Uh, and don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.